0: God, our Heavenly Father, you tell us if if we receive your words and treasure up your commandments, if we make our ears attentive to wisdom and incline our hearts to understanding, then we will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For you give wisdom, and from your mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And this morning, God, we want to do just that. We want to grow in wisdom We want to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. We want to know what it means to fear you and treasure up your commandments in our hearts. For we need your scriptures, God, your holy, inspired, and and infallible word to us to guide us this morning. So we ask that you would open our minds, that you would make us attentive, incline our hearts to understanding, help us search your scriptures and grow in the knowledge of you, our King and our God. And we ask all of this, in the name of Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Son of David, our true King, in whom we have every spiritual blessing. Amen. Psalm 72, this is the last, of book two, of the Psalms of Solomon. It reads, the word of God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May you judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of God and all his people said, amen. Amen. Psalm 72 is unique. It's unique because this is the final psalm in book two of the psalms. The the psalms are divided into five sections, five books. Last summer, we went through book one of the psalms. This summer, we've been going through book two of the psalms. And this psalm is unique because you notice, if you have it open in front of you, Psalm 72 says it's a psalm of Solomon, of Solomon. You see that in the heading of the psalm, what sometimes is referred to as the superscription. It's a psalm of Solomon, who is the son of David, the son of the king, But then, you read at the very bottom, verse 20, and it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. What's most likely happening here, and you see this in other places throughout the Bible, is David is praying, and he's the one actually writing this psalm, this prayer, at the end of his life. David ruled over Israel and Judah for 40 years. He'd established the kingdom of Israel. He'd established it. In Jerusalem, the city of God, he'd made preparations for his son Solomon to build the temple after him. And he'd grown Israel to one of the most dominant empires in all of the world. And now he's nearing the end of his life, and David's doing what all of us would do at the end of our life. He's looking back. He's looking back at the king he was, the kingdom that he had built, the people that he'd ruled over. He's looking at his life in general, but what he's also doing is he's looking forward in hope, in hope for the kingdom that he's built, hope for his son Solomon, who would be his heir, who would take his place, in hope for the people that he had ruled and shepherded for all of his life. David's nearing the end of his life and he's lifting up this final prayer for a king for his son Solomon and all of their successors, a prayer to God. Oh God, send a king like this. This is the kind of king your people need. God, if it's my last prayer, I would pray this. Send one who would be like this to rule over your people. And surprisingly, the first thing that David prays for in this hoped for, longed for king is that this king, verse one, would be a king of righteousness. You see that? Verse one, he prays, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And notice, David, in this prayer, he's not praying for lowercase r, righteousness, or lowercase j, Justice. No, he's praying for capital R, righteousness, the righteousness of God. He says, give the king your justice, God. That your character would be embedded in this king. That when people would look at this king, it would be illustrative of your reign, God. Give the king your righteousness. And if you didn't know this, God actually gave his king's specific Precepts, specific marks of what a righteous king would look like. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. At this time, the people of God, they're wandering through the desert. They're being led by Moses. They don't have a king, but God knows in their heart one day they're going to ask for a king. And he says, on that day, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver And gold. These are the requirements. These are the precepts. You want a king, these are the marks to look for. This is how he should rule. And he continues. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. These are the marks of a righteous king. want to know what a righteous king looks like? God sets it down. Deuteronomy chapter 17, a king who delights in the law of the Lord who has a book, a book of the law, right? This would have been scrolls. But what he does is he meditates on it because he knows a human being doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, one who's dependent on the scriptures, the word of God. That's a righteous king. A king who's humble and teachable, whose heart isn't haughty or lifted up above those he rules over and looking down on all of them. Not that kind of king. A king who doesn't pander or vacillate from the right and to the left, you know, based on what this public opinion poll says or what Rasmussen reports, right? Not one of those kings. No, one who steadfastly pursues justice, what is right, regardless of public opinion. A king who doesn't seek notoriety or fame by drawing attention to himself and amassing wealth for himself. A king who trusts in God. Not in chariots, not in horses, not in his military might, but in God. Those are the marks of a righteous king. A king whose reign is illustrative of God himself. God's character, God's rule. It's just a thought experiment. You know, I was reflecting because just this past Wednesday, maybe many of you watched this, just Wednesday was the first official Republican presidential debate. And almost all commentators agree, you know, there was a number of issues that were discussed throughout the debate, but almost all commentators after the fact agree that the defining issue that will sway most voters in this election cycle, given inflation, interest rates, increased, uh, increased uh, inflation, shrinking workforce, high student loan date, the issue that will sway most voters is the economy. That's the driving issue. What will people do? What will the leader do for our economy, for our checkbooks? That's the issue that's going to sway voters in 2024. And it's not surprising because as Americans, the God that we worship is money. Wealth, luxury, comfort, ease. A good leader in 21st century America is one who can drive an economy now right now, and help my 401k. But again, that's just a thought experiment. I digress. Notice the the King David prays for, how different this is. It's a righteous king, one who does right. That, That might mean doing what is right, even when economically it doesn't suit the needs and the material welfare of those who rule. Do you see that? It's actually... Spelled out explicitly in verse 2 through 4, isn't it? Notice what he says. David, in this prayer, after praying for the righteousness of God to be given, he says, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush those who oppress them. David does this throughout the psalm, by the way. What he's going to do is he's going to say something and then he's going to echo it later. And you hear an echo of this prayer later on in verse 12. He says, verse 12, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious, precious is their blood, their life in his sight. That's the disposition of a righteous king toward those he has nothing to benefit from. You know how unrighteous kings rule? Unrighteous kings, they see the the needy, the helpless, the poor, the vulnerable, they see them as fodder. You know what fodder is, right? Fodder is like dry hay, dry grass. And you use fodder in order to feed livestock or kindle fires. That's what you do with fodder. It's just a means to an end. That's how unrighteous rulers view the needy. They're like fodder, expendable, viewed as objects to be used for the material success of others. The poor are not given justice. No, they're used to fight wars. Send them out to wars. Recruit them, send them out. The needy are recruited on the front lines. They're just, they're expendables, right? The needy are delivered. They're not delivered when they cry out. No, they're just a tax base to increase the wealth of the the king who's in charge. Their daughters aren't valued either. Not at all. No, they're, they're devalued, and then they're given over for exploitation, just to be married off. The needy, because they're like fodder, too. This was prevalent back in the times of David, but it's especially present Today, the needy can be leveraged to increase the wealth of the powerful. Once they fall into debt, what you can do is you can then bail them out, giving them a loan, and then charge an exorbitantly high interest rate so you can squeeze out every single dime that they're worth. That's the defining mark of an unrighteous king, a sinful king, who sees the poor and the needy as riffraff, fodder, something to be used to advance the material success of the kingdom. Not a righteous king, no. A righteous king sees the blood and the life of the needy as precious in his sight. He gives them justice even when they have nothing to gain. He gains nothing from it at bottom. He does what a righteous king does. He does what's right, even if it hurts him materially. He gives the poor equal treatment alongside the affluent. He gives the needy deliverance as he would the well. He gives the vulnerable justice as he would do for anybody else in his kingdom. That's what a righteous king does because at bottom, that's what a righteous king means, is a king who does what's right and puts things right. Because again, that's God's character. God's character is to put things right, to treat those who are most vulnerable and needy in the way that they deserve. He gives them justice. Deuteronomy chapter 10, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. The righteous king, God himself, does what's right. He's not partial. He doesn't accept bribes. He doesn't bend to public opinion. No, he gives justice to the vulnerable because it's right. He puts things right. He makes things right and does what is right. And David prays, God, send that kind of king. That's the kind of leader that we need. A king, oh God, who will rule like that, who does justice for anyone indiscriminately because that is what is right. We need a righteous king. After all, we all know what it's like when somebody reigns in unrighteousness, don't we? My wife, just on Saturday, she had some errands to do, so she went out of the house, and she was gone for like eight hours. Lord, help us. The righteous king leaves, and it's just me with my four kids. And you can imagine the chaos that ensued when one dad tries to tackle all four by himself. It's chaos. They're screaming, crying, headaches, tears. I can't do this. When is lunch? I'm hungry, running around naked. And then there's everything that my kids do. When my kids are under the leadership of an unrighteous ruler, chaos ensues. That's exactly what happened throughout the history of Israel. In David, there's this glimpse, this, this sliver of light. Oh, you could see the righteousness of God ruling over God's people. As a man did what was right regardless of the cost... This sliver could be seen. And after David, it it seemed like Solomon, okay, he's going to expand that light. It's going to advance throughout the Middle East and throughout the world. Solomon built the temple of God. He received international renown for his justice and his wisdom. People came to him and they were asking him, how do we rule like you? But it didn't last. Soon Solomon had righteousness as priority number one, but then soon thereafter it became priority number two, then priority number five, and then after all, it just became an afterthought. Not righteousness, no, what's expedient? Not what is righteous, what what will sway people's opinion of me? And because of that, Solomon, in order to draw attention to himself, in order to Amass wealth for himself in order to gain public opinion for himself. He started marrying foreign wives, prohibited by God. Worshiping foreign gods like Ashtaroth of the Sidonians, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, also prohibited by God. He amassed great wealth and military power, not trusting in God, the God who delivered them from Egypt and his powerful, his strong arm. No, I'm going to take it on myself. Let's build up our military force and let's dominate. That's how we're going to advance. What happened is, is Solomon took that sliver, that sliver of light, and he smothered it with carbon dioxide. So much so that historians after Solomon finished his reign, described Solomon in these terms. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And the outcome's predictable, right? Chaos ensues after that. Almost every other king after Solomon follows the path of Solomon. So much so. So there were 41 kings, 41 after Solomon, only four, four, only four kings are said to have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord after Solomon. All the rest, 37 out of 41, are summarized ignobly. They're summarized in this way. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father. All of those other kings followed their father Solomon. Walked in the way of Solomon and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. David's praying, God, we need a king. We need a kingdom. We need a ruler, a leader who's righteous above all else. Who will make things right. A king whose reign is illustrative of your reign, God. And from 971 BC to 586 BC, for nearly 400 years, Israel's kings made God's rule and reign. An afterthought. We don't need righteousness. No, we need success, power. That's how we get ahead. And notice what David Praise next. David's prayer is that this righteous king, his righteousness would go far beyond. His rule would, would permeate beyond the here and now. Notice what he says in verse 5. Notice all the key words that David writes here. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations... In his day, may the righteous flourish. This is verse 7. And peace abound till the moon be no more. And just like he did before, he echoes this prayer. This time in verse 15, he prays. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. Prayer be made to him for him continually. Blessings invoked from him all the day. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. You hear this prayer here, right? He's saying, oh God, send a righteous king. Send a king to reign over your people, not just now. We need a king who will endure eternally. Not a temporal king, not on earth for a number of years. One whose name will endure forever, an eternally righteous king. That's his hope here. The four kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord throughout Old Testament history, this was their limitation. They could reign in righteousness. They could reign in justice. But they had an expiration date on their reign and rule. Take Josiah. Josiah is my favorite Old Testament king. Josiah was a righteous king. It says very explicitly, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he did a lot of good things. He removed the altars of Baal and Asherah. From the temple of God in Jerusalem. He deposed priests who had the people of God worshiping the sun and the moon. That's a no no, by the way. He restored the Passover celebration, the commemoration of God delivering his people out of Egypt, because that had just become an afterthought. He submitted himself in humility to the words of God's law. He ruled in humility and justice. But you know what happened? Josiah died. It had an expiration date on his reign, and after his 31 years, chaos ensued. Josiah was followed by Jehoahaz, who ruled in his place, and God's righteousness, his justice, his character, afterthought again. And David's prayer, his concern, David's hope for his people, is for an eternal king. Eternal, who has no expiration date. A king whose name would endure forever, a king who will make things right eternally. Again, a thought experiment. Engage in this thought experiment with me. Is that your hope? Is that our hope? Is that our priority? Is that our desire and our prayer as people who follow the living God? Because the political season, it's officially kicked off. Officially kicked off, and because of that, the next 13 months in our country, even our churches, sadly, even our churches will divide over a number of issues. We're gonna divide over them. Who can control the cost of a gallon of gas? That's one issue we're gonna divide over. Who is the best to handle our national debt today? What will happen to my 401k today? will we continue to send foreign military aid to this country or that country in the immediate future? And you know what? We will divide over all those issues. Churches will divide over those issues and none of these issues have anything to do with the eternal souls of human beings now. Zero of those issues have any bearing on the eternal souls of human beings. None. None of those issues Can I get an amen up here? (laughs) Every four years we do the same thing. Here's the line in the sand and we say, those people are the problem. Of course they are. They're always the problem. (laughs) We lament that this country, you know what, it's just not as it used to be. We get agitated and anxious over who will be a good leader now. Who will turn this country around today? Which party will expand our influence and might? hear what we don't hear hardly ever, if at all, is a sense of concern or agitation over the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or what we don't hear are the words of Jesus who said explicitly, my kingdom is not of this world. What we don't hear is that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to whomever he wishes. What we don't hear is that God calls us no matter who the candidate or ruler, whether Republican, Democrat, Independent, Socialist, or Libertarian, to submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That's not a political statement, friends. That's Romans 13. What we don't hear is we're made for a city and kingdom that is not built by human hands. What we don't hear is that we are made for a kingdom ruled by an eternally righteous King and friends, Deer Creek, as, as your pastor, hear me on this. Can I tell you, if you're more concerned about the 2024 election than you are about the eternal reign of God, if that agitates you more in your soul, your priorities are wrong. Priority number one is a city, a kingdom that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And again, I say this with all heartfelt affection and love. That kingdom is not the United States of America. And that king is not on the ballot in 2024. But again, it's just a thought experiment. This king... That David speaks about, it's an eternal king that was promised to David himself. David was promised this king. Toward the end of his reign, David had done a lot of great things, and he wanted to do one more great thing. He wanted to build a house for God, he wanted to build a temple for God. But instead of David doing something for God, God said, I'm gonna do something for you, David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the king that David prays for. This one promised to him who would be the son of David but also the son of God who would reign not just over Israel for a time, but forever, eternally, a king for whom God would establish his throne forever, a king who would make all things right eternally, not just in the here and now. And it's remarkable. This is precisely who Jesus himself claimed to be. You know, almost a thousand years after David had received this promise from God. A man by the name of Matthew, who is one of the writers of the New Testament, this man named Matthew, had the audacity to open up his gospel by writing these words. He said, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know what Christ means? Christ means anointed one or anointed king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is David's promised son, the offspring promised to David. There's a reason that when Jesus was baptized, the first words that came from heaven, the kingdom of God itself, were these. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. There's a reason that Jesus' first words of public ministry were repent, Matthew 4, 17, repent, turn back to God, turn back to Jesus and trust in him for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's finally here. A thousand years in the making, failed king. After failed king, well, here he is, the true king, the son of God, the son of David. The righteous son of God who didn't come to reign just for a time, for a little bit. Until things get ironed out with your 401k, no. this is the king who's come to reign permanently and to make things right forever. You ever wonder what that reign would look like? David actually, throughout this psalm, it's interesting, he weaves in throughout all of his prayer petitions an image, a picture of what this reign would look like when this king would come. He says, Verse three, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. Verse six, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. Verse nine, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Verse 16, may there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields. These are all pictures of the eternal blessings of a world made right by the righteous king himself. These are pictures, blessings, from books like Deuteronomy that said, When a righteous king rules, this will be the result on the land. Israel never experienced it, but David prays one day, God, will our people, will my people that I've built up as their king, would they one day experience those blessings eternally? A world, a kingdom where there's no blight, there's no mildew, there's no famine or scarcity. No, there's only prosperity, prosperity. Blessing, abundance, and fruitfulness from the mountains to the hills, wherever they can see. A kingdom where there's no drought or famine, but only abundance and feasting on the goodness of the Lord. A kingdom where there's no threat of invasion or war or death. No, in fact, death, pain, illness, sin, all of God's enemies will lick the dust before this king. The Son of God, the Son of David, will make everything right eternally and bring eternal blessings to His people. His reign is the illustrious reign of God Himself. I was recently talking to a precious lady who's in our church, and she's uh, just undergone a, a serious surgery. And throughout her whole life, she's just battled a lot of health issues. She had, you know, health issues when she was younger. She's had anxiety her whole life. And then she just had this devastating surgery that took weeks of recovery. She's finally home now. But as I was sitting with her in the hospital room the other day, one of the cries of her heart was, I don't understand why God keeps answering my prayers by saying no. I've asked him to heal me of these things. I've asked him to change these things. And the prayer constantly seems to be no. And I couldn't help but think of this passage and these eternal blessings that David prays about. And the only thing I could say to her is, God has not answered your prayers no. No, he's answered yes, but just not yet. These blessings are coming. These blessings will flow into eternity as the righteous kings makes this world right. After all, Jesus, the king of righteousness, he himself had to face suffering and pain and crucifixion for the sins of the world. He himself had to be buried in death. So we too, we know, we'll experience suffering. We're going to experience illness and cancer and miscarriage and pain, depression. We're going to experience these things, but it's not permanent. They have an expiration date. Jesus was raised again to newness of life. He was resurrected, which means his reign has established the eternal reign. A reign reign. That he promises one day we too will share in a resurrection and there will be no more anxiety, there will be no more surgery, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more death, there will be no more illness or pain. The eternal blessings will reign eternally because of the righteous king. Death, pain, illness, sin, all of God's enemies will lick the dust before King Jesus. Because the lives of the needy are precious in his sight. After all, that's the character of God, isn't it? To take the needy, to take the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the sinful, and the suffering, and to pour out blessings and grace upon them freely by faith. Uh, can I get an amen? <laughs> David prays for that king. Jesus, the eternal king, the Son of God who makes all things right. And as David closes his prayer, his final prayer, beginning in verse 8, is that this king would be universal from sea to sea. He prays that this king, verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And like before, a summary echo. Again, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. From the river, that's the river Euphrates, which was in the far northeast to Tarshish, which was in the far northwest, to Sheba and Seba, which was as far south. All of these are as far off as David can imagine. It's his way of saying, as he does in verse 19, summary, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. May the eternally righteous king reign over all creation. Friends, do you realize Jesus reigns as this universal and eternal king today? There's not a millimeter of creation that you you can find that Jesus doesn't rule over as we speak. And while there are those who do not acknowledge it, a day is coming. A day is coming and promised by Jesus himself where every knee will bow and every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. It's coming. And the effects of that eternal reign of God are already pouring forth into those who have faith in Jesus as king now. Through faith in Jesus as needy sinners, we have forgiveness of sins. We've been adopted into God's family. We are being transformed as we speak by the spirit of God and by his word, constantly throughout the rest of our life, into the image of Jesus the King himself. And on that day, when that eternal day comes, we will bow the knee to King Jesus willingly. And he will say to us, as he looks the poor and the needy, the sinful and the sufferer in the eyes, and he will say to them, come you who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. My kingdom is yours. And that kingdom, friends, it will have no expiration date. Every spiritual blessing will flow universally in all of creation. Every square inch will be made right. But on, those day, on that same day, That eternal day does come. Those who have rejected God's blessings now and those who have rejected his righteous reign and rule in this life and those who have concerned themselves only with the affairs and issues of today, seeing repentance and faith in Christ as an afterthought, their knees will bow, but it will be reluctantly. And on that day, Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. One thing is certain that day is coming. It is a glorious day where the eternal, righteous, universal king will reign in justice and in righteousness. And the kingdom will be given to us who trust in the king now. What better hope could David pray for his kingdom? My kids and I, every night before we go to bed, we usually read some sort of Bible story. And one of the books that we read when they were a lot younger was the Jesus Storybook Bible. And that storybook Bible ends the same way that the Bible ends with the vision that John, one of the followers of Jesus, had of this eternal kingdom, which will one day come and dispel the curse of God as far as it is found, and light will reign and God's blessing will reign over all creation. And that book ends with these words. One day, John knew heaven, God's kingdom, would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for having once been so sad. And he knew that the ending was going to be so great It would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end. Instead, he wrote, come quickly, Jesus. Which is, of course, course, just another way of saying, to be continued. Because that day is coming. Where the eternal, resurrected King Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, will come and renew all earth as far as the curse is found. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) We long and hope for the day when you will return, Jesus. You have the name that is above every name. So that at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. You are eternal, You are the universal and righteous king we look forward to. We look forward to that day when you will make all things right again and you will make all things new. Jesus, we thank you that you are currently reigning and ruling even as we speak. You are a righteous and just king. We thank you that you show grace and love to needy sinners and sufferers like us. It's our only hope. And we pray, God, that we can experience by grace through faith the blessing of eternal life as it pours and flows into your people here and now. And lastly, Christ, work in us humility. Work in us repentance and faith. Would you help us to see the glory of your eternal kingdom and that we, as your people, would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Would we pursue a kingdom whose designer and builder is God and that we would strive forward to what lies ahead? and press on toward the goal of your righteous kingdom. We pray all this in your name, King Jesus. Amen.